All right. Good morning again. And let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Samuel chapter number 13 and Acts chapter number 13. So we're going to look uh, just one verse in each of these two passages as we get started this morning. Uh, and we are going to be moving around a little bit. We're going to look at a couple of different passages this morning in 2 Samuel and in the Psalms. Uh, and so, but we're going to begin here in 1 Samuel chapter number 13. Uh, the setting here, and con contextually, so we're going to kind of jump into the middle of a story here. Saul is being removed from the kingdom uh, by God for his sin. And then God is proclaiming the kind of man that he wants on his throne. In 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 14, But now thy, Saul's kingdom, shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. God has sought a man after his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people. Because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. Mark those, those two words in your mind or in your Bible if you like. That God sought and that David is after his heart. Then in Acts chapter number 13. Uh, similarly we see and this is Paul preaching to the church at Antioch. This is the church of Antioch Pisidia. It's not the church of Antioch that is the church that sent them out. This is a different Antioch um, in uh, a little bit further in the northern part of what's modern day Turkey. Uh, and so as he's preaching to them uh, in the course of the message he makes reference to Saul, Saul's removal from the throne. And again uh, David in verse number 22 and when he had removed him, God removing Saul, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony. God gave testimony and said, I have found David. God found David, the son of Jesse, a man after, it's a word after again, mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. We've been talking these last four weeks, and this is the fourth week in our series on being overwhelmed. Am I going to be overwhelmed by the things that I face in this world? Or am I going to allow God to overwhelm my life? Uh, and this morning we're going to look at an overwhelming life of worship. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to you this morning again. We thank you for your promise to meet with us. We thank you for your word and its power. Uh, Lord, I realize and we all realize this morning that unless you're working in our hearts and lives and communicating through us through your word, then uh, we're really not accomplishing much here. Lord, I pray that our hearts will be open. I pray that you'd help us. Lord, there's been much, uh, much going on in the lives of your people, even within a small church here. Lord, there's so much to consume our thoughts. There's so much to distract our attention. May you help us this morning to settle in and to cast those things to the side just for a little while. And open our hearts to your leading, to your working, to your speaking to them. Lord, help us this morning. Help us to be a people that love you, serve you, and that are faithful, Lord, in executing your plan in this last days. In Jesus' name, amen. When you look at David's life, David's life is a life that is intriguing. I think that uh, David's life, more than the lives of the men that we've looked at before, resonates more with us. Uh, it's not that there aren't aspects of Abraham's life that speak to us. Certainly there are. But I don't know that any of us would ever attain the faith of an Abraham. Then there's Joseph and he had that righteousness. And it's important and we're going to emphasize how these things kind of build in the message this morning. The righteousness by which guided Joseph's life. 
I think that there are a lot of people currently in churches and serving the Lord in our church that they're pure in their worship of God, their service to God. We all know that if we've trusted Christ as our Savior, that positionally we're righteous before God. But that right for that righteousness to carry over into our everyday life and govern our decision making and our values and uh, and how we live uh, is another story. I, I think that. Uh, many of us have, if not most, have an, a desire to be righteous in our, uh, in our life. But I, I don't think that any of us could claim that we've reached this, the, the level of righteousness that a Joseph would have reached. Uh, and when we look at uh, Moses uh, and all that he dealt with and his leadership and, his, uh, and his, the things that he had to, to cope with, uh, that any of us would ascend to uh, to the, the live in the presence of God like Moses lived in the presence of God, though certainly we have God's presence within us in the Holy Spirit. But in David, David's just us. He's just a guy that messes up a lot. Uh, I mean, he's, he's and depending on how old you are this morning, where you are in your own journey of life, you probably view David, if you're younger, in context of Goliath and slaying thousands and ten thousands more than you view his failure uh, in his latter life. If you're older, uh, and I always have to be careful whenever that term comes up in my house, my wife wants to know if my kids raise it, what do you call an old? Who you call an old? Uh, and so if you're older, we tend to focus more on uh, his failures. And certainly David had plenty of both. And I, I would say that the Bible in its, in its story of him and the way that it lays out his life to us focuses more on his successes in his early life and then seemingly focuses more on his failures in his latter life. However, uh, I, I think that you could make an argument uh, that, and I think we'll see this morning in his life, how even through his failures, he succeeded. We look at a man like David who as a young boy, and we don't know for sure how old he was when he was tending his father's flocks and when he slew the lion and the bear and then ultimately slew Goliath. Uh, most scholars put him somewhere between 13 and 17. Uh, I would tend to think that it was probably was on the younger edge of that. Uh, and I think that primarily because whenever he come up into uh, serving in, in Saul's palace uh, and he went out and Saul got jealous because they, when he came back, uh, the women sing songs about Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And the Bible describes him as a mighty man of valor and a man of war. That indicates to me that there was a pretty big transformation of his body from the time that he slew Goliath to the time that he matured. He filled out. He got muscled up. He, uh, he, uh, th there's an indication of change. We don't know how long it was. What we do know is that when he ascended the throne, he was 30. And so for however long it was, if it was 13 years like Joseph or if it was 17 years uh, or somewhere in between, there is a long period of time in David's life where he is facing things like a lion and a bear in the field and a giant on the battlefield and then a king that wants to kill him and then fleeing through the wilderness. We know that at one point, uh, a stay as he was on the run in the wilderness from Saul, just at one juncture, one stay with the Philistines was a year and a half long. And so it's very likely that he was out in the wilderness on the run for a number of years, not a number of weeks or months. So David's life has not been an easy life. 
And David's life is a life that in that time is very inspirational. And as we follow that life, we see that he had great character. He had great values. His brothers mocked him when he came out and, and was offended because they were allowing this Philistine to defy God and to defy their nation. Uh, but yet David said righteously and famously, is there not a cause? And then he had to argue his way onto the battlefield. And then Saul tried to put armor on him that he wasn't big enough and trained in to handle uh, and, and to, to manage. And so he said, listen, uh, this is what God has done for me. And God's going to do that for me with Goliath. And finally Saul laments and lets him go and God guides the stone and David pulls out the sword and I can almost envision him in my mind struggling with the weight of the sword uh, to get it up to chop off the giant's head and then to grab that head and to pick it up by its locks and all of the blood and the gore that would have come dripping with that and taking it back, that trophy back to Saul as the Philistines fled and as the Israelites pursued them and God gave victory because a young boy had the faith and had the, the tenacity to stand for righteousness even when it seemed that to do so would have met his certain and sure demise. David is a man of valor. We see his, uh, his growth but we also see his distractions. And what we're going to see this morning in David is a man who had these great victories but then also had great defeats in a time when he ascended the throne and he uh, was in a position of power and a position now of wealth and he's not on the run from anybody. The enemy's on the run from him and rather than uh, w fulfilling his duty and doing what he should have done and going to battle, he stayed home, sees a beautiful Bathsheba bathing on her roof, uh, seduces her, uh, con she conceives a child and then he has her, her husband murdered uh, because he won't uh, allow him to shift the blame and uh, give the guys to give him what would be a, in his mind an honorable out. He begins to manipulate. He commits murder. Then he has to endure the shame of being confronted by, uh, by the prophet and called out on his sin. And in his rage, he pronounces his own sentence. And now he's faced with the fact that I'm going to have to watch uh, or at least know that four of my sons are going to die because of what I've done and he did in fact witness the death of three of them. He had to deal with the grief of the, that dead baby. He had to deal with the grief of a son that raped a sister and then another brother, another son uh, who murdered the brother because David didn't act in giving justice for Tamar. Then Absalom was banned. And he had the bitterness of not forgiving and not welcoming back and not and then Joab came to him and uh, and partially uh, compelled him to bring Absalom back but he only partially forgave. Absalom was permitted to come back to Jerusalem but he wasn't permitted to come and see the king's face. He also has at this point an undertow of rebellion within his own counselors because his main counselor at the point in the time of his sin with Bathsheba was the grandfather of Bathsheba. And he just laid in wait until the time was right to seek his, his vengeance when Absalom ascended the throne or ran David out of town. To see Absalom come back and to steal the hearts of the people and finally to uh, force him to go out and to be ridiculed and have to go back out into the wilderness. And then uh, to, to have Joab betray his trust in executing Absalom when he clearly stated that he wanted him brought in alive. And he could have been brought in alive. So all in his life now, he has the, the after effect of his sin. He has the ramification uh, of, of, the, of one bad decision, which led to and compounded multiple bad decisions. 
And he's paying a high price. And then ultimately he goes and he uh, sins again. Even though Joab and others tried to talk him out of the decision to, to take a census, to number the people, and then uh, uh, tens of thousands of them died because of David's sin. You understand, David could see in very real time the consequences of his sin. Sometimes it, we struggle to see the consequences of our sin until much farther down the road. David could see the consequences of his sin very quickly and all throughout his life. It never left him. It was always there. Uh, and you could easily look at David and say because of all of these horrible things that David was a failure in his walk with God but that's not how the Bible describes him. And the wonderful thing about this is that uh, what David is is what we are. He's just a sinner. And so when we look at David's life we have to define David's life not by the victories of his young life and not by the failures of his adult life but the entirety of his life and how did God define it and we see in our text this morning in the two opening verses that we see that David was a man after God's own heart. Now, uh, I want to dwell on that for a moment because when we talk about David being a man after God's own heart, what we tend to think is, is that David had a heart that was a lot like God's. But then it's hard to reconcile. How did a man who had a heart that was a lot like God's do the things that David did? So what does that mean? What does it mean when it says that David was a man uh, after God's own heart? And the word after has multiple definitions like most words like this do. But the one that's most applicable to this scenario is this. It is to be in pursuit or in search of. So David, a man after God's own heart. Is his heart like God's in many ways? Yes. But I believe the real message that David has for us is that David's heart was a heart that was in pursuit of God. And on the converse of that, it's very interesting to note that uh, in 1 Samuel and in the book of Acts, that the Bible takes the, uh, the, the point uh, to make to us that the Lord sought a man after his own heart. And so God is seeking for a specific type of a person. And David is seeking for a specific type of a God. And you could sum it up this way by saying that when God needed a king, God was in pursuit of a man who was in pursuit of him. And that begs the question to us this morning, in what or in whom are we in pursuit? Who is my life in pursuit of? Am I in pursuit of my own pleasure? Am I in pursuit of my own advantage? Am I in pursuit of what that which is going to benefit me in my own mind? Or am I in pursuit of a holy and righteous God? Because I promise you this morning that God is seeking for those that are seeking for him. Amen. And the Bible makes that abundantly clear in multiple passages. God is... Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus came uh, to, uh, to bring about growth and change and development in our life. So when God defines David's life, he says, this is a man that, I, that, that found me, that I found because he was seeking me. The second thing that's interesting about the life of David and that God gives us that defines David's life is found in 2 Samuel chapter 23 in the first verse. This is account of David giving his last official words uh, as king to uh, Israel uh, and it starts this way, now these be the last words of David 
David the son of Jesse said, and the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of God of Jacob, of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel said. So David is identified by God on two counts. Number one, he's a man that's in pursuit of God. He's a man after God's own heart. And secondly, he's the sweet psalmist of Israel. He, half of the psalms are attributed to David, at minimum. And so his life is defined not by his adultery, not by his murder, not by his bitterness, not by his lack of forgiveness, uh, not by his disobedience, not by his maniacal calculation of how to control things in his realm, but by the fact that he was the man who was in pursuit of God and a man who worshiped God and was the sweet psalmist of Israel. And what we've seen in these weeks leading up here is in Abraham we saw a man that had overwhelming faith. And listen, none of us can come to God, none of us can be saved aside from faith. The grace of God saves our souls, but it is the faith that we have in God that accesses that grace. The grace of God is around all of us all the time. It's around all the world, even in harsh environments. You can see the hand of God, the working of God, the grace of God at work. But it's, it's, it's just there waiting for faith to tap into its power. Any one of us, and hopefully all of us have, exercised that faith. And Abraham demonstrated for us an overwhelming faith, which led to righteousness being imputed to his account as we saw demonstrated in the life of Joseph. Joseph a man who did right, who stood for right and when things were hard, who led a life that was pleasing to God and godly uh, because of the righteousness that was imputed in him that God put in his heart. And so uh, faith leads to righteousness, which then we saw in Moses, a man who lived in the presence of God. It required God's overwhelming presence all throughout his life to cope with and to deal with the ministry that God gave him uh, and to handle his own uh, emotions and his own frustrations and, uh, and his own needs in that time of, uh, throughout his lifetime. And so we see that faith brought righteousness. Righteousness led to the presence of God. Uh, and then uh, that leads us to worship. And again, to just put that in a nutshell, the correlation, don't miss it, faith imputes righteousness. When Jesus saved my soul, he gave me and imputed to my account the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That righteousness be, should be manifested in my life and it also brought me into God's presence and now the Holy Spirit of God indwells us. We live in the presence of God, or we can. And the presence of God compels us then to worship. So no one of these things stand alone. All of these things should be overwhelming factors in our life. We should be overwhelmed with faith. We should be overwhelmed with the righteousness of Christ in our lives. We should be overwhelmed with the presence of God in our lives. And that brings us to a point where we should be overwhelmed by the presence of God and the worship of Him. We should have a desire to worship Him. And when we come to Him and when we see these things, we should be a people who are in pursuit of God because God is in pursuit of a people. Are we pursuing him? We see the worship in David's life prepared David for the challenges that he would face. When he was in worship with God, right worship, <clears throat> the godly, spiritual, biblical worship, then it prepared him to face the obstacles in his life and he overcame them. When he worshiped according to his own devices and in his own mind and in his own way, uh, then it led to his failure. 
But true worship prepared David and then it guided David when he worshiped wrongly and he failed. Good, pure worship reclaimed him and restored him throughout his entire life. And that's really the message of David's life is that it is a life uh, where sometimes we succeed in the Christian life and sometimes we fail in the Christian life. But it is ultimately God who reaches out and, uh, and gives us victories but then restores us when we fail. And David beautifully demonstrates that. And we see then, okay, pastor, so what is worship? Well, worship can be, uh, I, we could spend about three sermons just defining the, the term. So we're not going to do that this morning. But I do want to give you some insight to what biblical worship means by definition. First, I would say this, that worship is defined as the, as the feeling or the expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. That's just the basic dictionary definition of worship. It is uh, the, the feeling or the expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. In our case, the one true and living God. Now when you look at it a little bit more closely, then you see this. It is the act of reverent or deeply sincere. Reverent, reverent is not, when we, when I, I hate using that term, but it is the definition that's using it. Reverent does not mean that we are just quiet and hush hush and all pious okay it, it doesn't mean uh, that that we uh, are you know like just a, a bunch of uptight uh, Lutherans or Presbyterian or other Protestant brands of uh, of religion uh, it, but it, 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 it's not that we don't need to be uh, Baptitarian I'd rather be a little Baptocostal than I had be a Baptitarian. But, uh, but uh, you know, it, what, it, what it means is that when we look at this, uh, that, that it is reverent, reverent meaning it is deeply sincere. In other words, you can go someplace where worship is very demonstrative, but it's just a show, it's just put on, it's not sincere. That's not worship either. And, and we're going to get into that in a little bit more detail in a little bit, but understand the basic concept here. It means to honor and to pay honor and homage to God. Now, homage is not a term that we use regularly uh, in modern day. And so this is, this is what homage means. And, this is, and it came from the old feudal systems in the old world. And so when a, a, in that system, when someone uh, would, a serf would move on to a landowner's property, they would have to enter into an agreement with the Lord of that land in order to have housing and to be able to raise crops or to have flocks on their land. Uh, and that was called paying homage. And that's where the term paying homage comes from. So when we paid homage, what they were doing is that they were entering into an agreement in which they were promising that they would be submissive or obedient to the landowner's request. Then they also were saying that we would be loyal to the landowner. We would help defend the property of the landowner and attack. Uh, so there was the, the promise of submission or obedience, the promise of loyalty, and then ultimately the promise of service. So to pay homage is to submit, it is to be loyal, and it is to serve. So worship of God is to sincerely and deeply Commit to obeying God or to submit to his will to then be loyal to that God and then to serve God. And I cannot worship God apart from those things. 
I can sing songs, I can offer prayer, I can go through the motions of a worship service, but I cannot purely and truly worship if my heart and my attitude is not in, in deep sincerity paying honor and homage to God. My attitude, my spirit, God, I submit to you, I'm loyal to you, and I'll serve you. It's the act of reverent honor and homage to God. Secondly, it is the honor of an it is to honor with an extravagant love and an extreme submission. So now we're not just getting into the casual, okay, if it's convenient for me to be obedient, I'll be obedient. It's extreme submission. I want to make sure that I do everything that God expects of me. I want to make sure that I'm fully surrendered to every aspect, uh, even what I don't understand. I'm just going to trust him. Then it means, when we get to the Hebrew word here, and it's important that we understand the word, the most common word for worship in Hebrew is shakal. And what that means simply is to bow down in homage. And then we come back to the importance of understanding what homage is. To bow down in homage. To bow down, stating to God that I'm submitted to you, that I am loyal to you, and that I'll serve you. And so we see that manifest itself in David's life. Now David's life can be broken down really into two major divisions. And when we see that this morning, we'll see his worship as a shepherd. Now the Bible doesn't give us a lot of detail about his young life out in the field. We know that he faced a lion and a bear and God gave him victory. We know through many of the Psalms that he spent a lot of time in prayer and meditation and in song. Uh, we know that he learned to play instruments out in the field, watching uh, over his father's flocks and and so the Bible doesn't give us a lot of clear detail about that period of his life, but it does give us a lot of insight through David's writings. So we're going to see the wor his worship as a shepherd. Then he becomes the king and we'll see his worship as a sovereign. And then we'll conclude this morning by looking at his worship as a sinner. Because ultimately, he worshiped God as a shepherd and a sinner, and he worshiped God as a sovereign and a sinner. And all of us here this morning, I hate to break the news to you, and I'm not trying to be insulting, but we're just a bunch of old sinners. Amen. That's who we are. It's the essence of what we are. We're just sinners saved by the grace of God. And so what can we learn from the life of David that will help us? Well, first this morning, consider the worship of a shepherd. And we talk about that, and again, in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 14, uh, the Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. David is very young. The, the Bible, God is clearly stating here that David, as a young boy, is already described by the testimony of God as a man who's after his own heart. So we know that he's a man after God's own heart. So what does that tell us about him? Well, what it tells us about him, I believe, is threefold. Number one, I believe that you could say about David that he had an inspired worship. His worship was inspired. And I don't mean uh, that it was inspired like uh, God came and, uh, and dictated to him uh, like he was writing scripture, though clearly he did when he wrote Psalms. But, uh, but inspired. In other words, he came, he, he came with some energy. He, he came with some life. He came uh, excited about worshiping and serving God. His worship was one, a worship of excitement. Now that manifests itself in people's lives in a lot of different ways. Some people are quiet and reserved by nature. Some people are loud and boisterous by nature. And, uh, and so uh, what I'm saying this morning is that a genuine inspired worship, you should be able to see uh, some, some form of expression of genuine and pure worship. 
Now it may come in the form of, uh, of, of someone uh, nodding their head. And by the way, nodding their head as in, yes, pastor, I'm with you and I'm in agreement and I believe the Bible, not nodding your head in a nap. Okay, we get a lot of nodding here, but not enough of the right kind of nodding. Uh, and so it's a shame that that happens as much on Sunday morning. Uh, you kind of understand it better on Wednesday night, but Sunday night you've had a nap. Good night. Take a nap in the afternoon uh, and get a good night's sleep on Saturday. Don't stay up on Facebook till three o'clock in the morning. Get up and, uh, and, uh, and get some sleep so you can worship God, but respond. It's okay to laugh if something's funny. It's okay to raise a hand. It's okay to say amen. It's a good thing to say hallelujah. It's a good thing uh, to express when God is speaking. David had an inspired worship. Sometimes he would break out into song. Sometimes he would dance or whirl about. Sometimes he would uh, express himself in different ways. What I'm saying is that genuine worship is expressive. There should be some form of indication that God is actually being worshipped and God is speaking to my heart. It was an inspired worship. We see, secondly, I believe that it's a contemplative worship. And I wish that we had, for sake of time, uh, to look at a multitude of different references here. Uh, but I think most of you are familiar enough with David's life that you can easily find uh, these things or are aware of these things in his life. In the Psalms, in his writings, the, the constant talk of meditating on God. Meditating on Scripture, uh, the the time of prayer and his times of uh, of worship and the beauty of God's holiness and we see a lot of different things that David put out there. What that indicates is is that David was contemplative in his worship. It, it wasn't flippant. It wasn't spur of the moment. It wasn't uh, casual. It was genuine and it was reverent and it was sincere, and it was deep and it was meaningful, and. We see him meditating on what God's done in his life, laying awake at night, thinking about the things of God, not fretting about the things of this world. Worshiping his, his Savior. Then we see that the preparative nature of his worship. David's worship was a preparative worship. In other words, it prepared him for the obstacles that he would face. Worship is preparation. Now, we don't come this morning with the idea of, okay, I'm going to worship God so I'll be prepared to face whatever I have to face this week. We come to worship God because God is worthy of our worship. But the, but the impact of that on our lives is, is that it does prepare us for what we're going to face. And it does have the residual effect of and cultivating and developing us an ability to focus on God in the midst of adversity and obstacles rather than focusing on the problems that come up in life. So in David's life as a shepherd, we see a young man who's out in the field, who's tending his father's flocks, who is taking advantage of the time uh, to worship God in song. He's taking the opportunity to, uh, to respond to God, to meditate on God, and to allow that worship to prepare him for what he would face. What did slaying the lion and the bear prepare him for? What did that faith, that confidence in God prepare him for facing the giant? It was his worship that prepared him. The second thing that we see is his worship as a sovereign. And we consider David's worship as a sovereign. And we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter number 6. I believe it demonstrates here uh, a, that, that transition in uh, David's life. And we don't have time to read the entire account here. But what this is, is the account of the, the Philistines, when they defeated Israel and Saul and Jonathan were slain, they took the ark. 
And when they took the ark, they took it to their temple of a god that they had that was called Dagon. And uh, it famously fell on its face and the hands and the head were broken off. And uh, the people were smitten with, uh, with uh, disease. And then they were, uh, we got to get this out of here. And so they send it back. And they, when they send it back, they send it back on a brand new cart. They send it back uh, with golden gifts to, to God. Uh, and they send it to a man's house by the name of Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom is tremendously blessed for caring for, uh, for the ark. But, uh, but when David comes on the throne, uh, he's settling things and getting things in order. And then he comes to realize, hey, the ark is not in the Holy of Holies. God is not in his rightful place in our nation and on our hearts. And so David seeks to rectify uh, that, to rectify the problem and going to get the ark and to bring it back to its rightful place. But he doesn't do things in the right way. And what that demonstrates for us is that David is worshiping, but he's worshiping as his sovereign self. He's worshiping himself indirectly by worshiping God. And we see that because he does things his way instead of doing things God's way. And when you look at this passage in the first 11 verses of 2 Samuel chapter 6, you see that David is employing a misguided worship. He comes and he wants to get this. And David arose in verse 2 and went with all the people that were with him. And so he's leading them, in essence, astray from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And so he goes and uh, in verse number 6 we see when they came uh, to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took it hold of it. For the oxen shook it, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error. And there he died by the ark, and David was displeased because the Lord made a breach upon Uzzah. So David is here under the guise of restoring the ark to its rightful place, or restoring the presence of God in Israel, thus restoring proper worship in Israel. But he does not follow the command that God has given and understand that an Israelite at this time is fully aware of how the ark is supposed to be transported. The temple has not yet been built. They're still worshiping in the tabernacle. Uh, they are still uh, trying to, uh, to, to follow those protocols. They understood that only the Levites were, were permitted or were allowed uh, to handle God's furniture. And even those items, especially the holier items, were not rings that were made on them. And they had staves that they carried around to slide through those rings so that they could lift them and carry them. Only the Levites, only at God's command in a very specified way. David goes and says, hey, uh, we're, we're just going to get a new cart and we're going to get some young oxen that have not had the yoke on them. And we're going to put the ark on there and we're going to bring it back. It looks like worship. It looks like something that you would think, hey, God will be pleased with that. But the reality is, is that it wasn't God's way. It wasn't what God said to do. It wasn't a, an obedience and it wasn't an homage to God. It was a twisting and a manipulating of worship to suit conven the convenience of what David was trying to accomplish. And we could park right there and make a lot of application to modern day worship. But consider for a moment that the problem here is that David is disguising his own worship of self by manipulating the form of worship to God.
The question that that begs to be asked of us is, who's sitting on the throne of our heart? Who is the sovereign of our life? Who is it that we truly are worshiping? It can be cloaked with a lot of Bible reading. It can be cloaked with a prayer time. It can be cloaked with church attendance. It can be cloaked with a lot of spiritual things. But that does not make God the king of my life and my heart. And what David is showing us here is a misguided worship. I wonder this morning how many of us have a misguided form of worship that we have convinced ourselves is pleasing to God. And then we sit back and wonder why God is not blessing us or using us in the way that we would like to be blessed or used. As worship as a sovereign, not only do we see his misguided worship, but now we see his, restored, his restorative worship. Notice in the same passage beginning in verse 12, verses 12 through 22 demonstrate for us the restorative nature of his worship. Now David has been, and remember he's, he's angry at God because God killed Uzzah. David sinned, led somebody astray, someone else gave their life for David's mistake. And <clears throat> David's angry at God. David gets that settled. They come and three months later they tell David, hey man, God's really blessing Obed-Edom. David said, okay, let's go and get it. And in verses 12 uh, through uh, 22, we have the account of David going back this time uh, in the proper way and bringing in the ark. And he's dancing before the Lord. He's whirling about. That's, there's that demonstration of worship. Uh, and we see uh, David outlandishly in, in, in an embarrassing way to his wife, Michael. And she's greatly rebuked because of it. And, uh, and David is committed to God. Uh, it, but it, what, it, what has it done? It has restored David. David was angry and bitter at God because he killed Uzzah. Now David is worshiping again. His joy is restored. He's, he's dancing about. He is doing the things that God would have him to do. And I would say this, we are not free to worship our way. You know, those people that would say, well, I can worship in my way. I can worship in my place. I can worship in uh, whatever, whatever justification you make, whatever spiritualization you slap on it. You cannot get aside from the fact that there is a specific way uh, that God told us to worship. And that is to worship in deep reference, uh, reverence and to be submitted, to be loyal and to serve. It also is to be worshipful in our private life. And it also is to be a part of worship in a corporate setting. And you cannot divorce those things from worship biblically. Amen. No matter how spiritual we make it sound, those are biblical requirements to worship. And when we look and we understand, is, is Pastor, can I not worship God privately? Yes, you can and you should. But you also, we also are commanded to assemble. And so the worship of a sovereign, there is that misguided worship, that restorative worship. We can't worship him our way. We must set our lives in order for pure worship. Worship shouldn't be viewed as an inconvenience. It should, be, it, should, it should be viewed as an honor. The third thing that I would say about the worship of a sovereign is that he is, he is demonstrative in his worship. It is a demonstrative worship. He is demonstrating, I'm worshiping God. He's demonstrating the joy of the Lord. He's demonstrating in a very obvious way that I am all about serving my God. How does our life, how does your life, how does my life demonstrate a love and a service for God that's real and genuine? Not one that's super spiritualized and we've justified and sugarcoated our look of, of things. 
so that everyone looks and thinks of what we are. Are we, je- are we anything more than whitewashed tombs? Are we genuine? And David in his life has shown us that genuine nature of worship in his youth as a shepherd. And he showed us in his adult life where misguided worship leads us, but also that in the midst of that, if we're truly a a people that are seeking God, that God will restore us from that. That's a beautiful thing. And so thirdly, this morning we see that there is the worship of a sinner. And David, in his life, demonstrates the worship of a sinner. And for this, we need to go to Psalm 51. The greatest psalm, uh, I believe, for anyone who is seeking a way back to God and a resetting of their spiritual life after sin or during sin is Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51 and verses 1 through 7, David starts and he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me throughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. It's interesting and worthy to note the purity of David's worship here. He's got sin in his life and in purity he comes back and said, God, I'm dirty, cleanse cleanse me. And notice here, he's not blame shifting. Blame shifting is an art form in modern day society. We think that if we can say, I feel this way because that person did this to me, that that makes it okay. We think that because someone injured me, someone hurt me, someone lied about me, we think that because someone else is doing it too, we think that because that's what all my friends are doing or that's what the culture has accepted. We think about all these different things and we use those things as a justification to, well, it's okay for me. And we blame everyone else for our sin. Did you notice that David didn't say here, God, I've sinned against you, but it's because Bathsheba was bathing on her roof. God, I sinned against you and I murdered Uriah, but it's his own fault because he wouldn't go be with his wife. God, I, I, you know, I created all this turmoil within my family because I wouldn't rebuke my son for raping my daughter. And then I got really angry at the one that killed my son three years later because I wouldn't be dad or king. And then when I let him come back, I, I didn't let him see my face, but, but it's because I didn't think he was repentant enough. You don't see that here. David's not looking and saying, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's their fault or it's someone else's fault or this is my justification. No, he says, I have sinned. This is my sin. God against, God, David is not saying that he did not wrong uh, Uriah or that he did not wrong Bathsheba or they did not wrong the others. What he's saying is, is that God, this matter of sin is between me and you and it's irrelevant the reason, the reality is, is that it is a wedge between us and it has ruined my life and I need to be restored from it. I sinned against you. 
And regardless of the reason why, it was my decision. It was my choice. And I bear the responsibility of it. And David is coming, owning his sin and realizing that the only avenue to joy and to fulfillment and happiness is the forgiveness of God. And listen, you'll never have forgiveness from God for your sin if you're hiding behind an excuse about why it was okay. Stop blame shifting and realize that we have a responsibility. Listen, I'm not saying that someone hasn't hurt you or someone hasn't wronged you or someone hasn't abused you. I'm not saying that this morning. What I'm saying is, is that let God deal with them. What God's going to deal with us about is how we respond. We have a responsibility to do right and we have a responsibility to respond biblically and when we fail to do that, it's sinful and it's the destruction of our own life and walk with God. And we see in David's life as the worship of a sinner that there is purity in his worship when he comes and begins with repentance for his sin. If you've got some breakdown in your worship life this morning, the road to recovery begins with repentance. David starts and says, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Understand what he's saying here. My sin is ever before me. My sin is on that screen that goes before me everywhere that I go. It's in my mind's eye when I lay down to sleep. It's in the back of my brain when I'm conversing with someone else. And no matter where I go, it's in pursuit of me. I cannot shake it. It's constantly eating me alive. The weight and the burden of my sin... God, my sin is ever before me. And if we would be free, we must repent. And if our worship would be pure, we must have clean hearts. And I say it frequently, but that we should never come, we, well, we should come, but we should always come to God's house prepared, pure, ready to worship. Our sins should be forgiven before we ever set foot through the doors. If it's not and you come and you get convicted and you get right in the altar, praise God. But for the most part, we should come already prayed up, already confessed and sin forsaken, already ready to worship our God. We're not here to be called out. We're here to worship, but we can't worship until our hearts are pure. And David in his life demonstrates the purity of worship. And in the first seven verses of Psalm 51, he demonstrates for us a repentant spirit. The second thing that we see about this is that we see in this the power of his worship. And in verses 8 through 12 of Psalm 51, he says, Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. David the shepherd Referring to God, the good shepherd. Understand that the shepherd did for the sheep what was necessary for their welfare. And a sheep that would constantly stray eventually would have a shepherd that would break its leg. And we would look at that on the outside and that seems so cruel. But the alternative was is that he strays and is eaten and devoured by wolves. The shepherd had to break the leg for its own benefit. And the breaking of that was painful. It seemed injurious. But it was the act of a loving shepherd. And notice that David's words make me to hear joy and gladness 
that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. In other words, when you've broken me, God, it was painful. But now, as I'm right with you, and I'm restored to you, I look back and I see joy came from that. That that working in my life that brought me back to you is what restored me and my broken bones rejoice at the goodness of God in my heart. And we look and we see the power of that worship being a worship that restores. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. What are we talking about here? Well, look, listen, we're talking about faith that gave eternal life that gave us an imputed righteousness that led us to the presence of God that has given us the ability and the desire to worship him. And David says in his worship, don't take away from me your presence. Stay with me. Keep me close to you. Blot away my sin. Bring me back. And we see the purity of his worship began with his repentance, but the power of his worship begins with his restoration. And when God brings injury, when God brings hurt, when God brings rebuke, it's always for the purpose of, rest of restoration. No loving parent disciplines their child of cruelty. They do it to correct a problem and to restore. No church disciplines or pastor uh, has counseling sessions that are, uh, that are dealing with issues out of, a, uh, out of a, a hurtful or mean spirit, uh, but at an effort to restore. And repentance and the walk with God and service of God is an attitude of, uh, of coming to the Lord and being repentant. And then we see the power of that worship restores us and over and over again in David's life. Uh, as you see him in his latter life, his sin with Bathsheba, there's, there's, there's repentance and restoration. His sin on the run from Absalom, there's, there's repentance and restoration. His census taking and the, uh, and the, the, the loss of life, uh, the pestilence because of his sin, there's repentance and restoration and David's sacrifice and what David has demonstrated for us and that all through life that when obstacles come our way and they overwhelm us that if we would in turn be overwhelmed by our worship of God that God will reach down and pluck us from that sin and that which has overwhelmed us and will overwhelm us with himself that we might be restored when we repent and brought back into his faithful service the power of worship it's the power of restoration Thirdly, we see the potential of that worship. And in verses 13 through 19, we see that potential when he says, then. What a beautiful word. Oh, Pastor, that's silly. It's just a little then. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. What's he saying here? The potential of worship. The return to service. When I have been repentant and when I have been restored, then I will return to serve. It brings us full circle. He continues. 
Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, God, the God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth will show forth thy praise. You understand what he's saying here? God, I want to do this your way now. I, I'm not putting you on a cart. I'm treating you and worshiping you properly. You open my mouth and I'll sing your praise. You work in me and flow through me and you'll be worshipped. For thou desirest not a sacrifice, else I would I give it. Thou desirest not in burnt, delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. What is God looking for? God is looking for a perpetual state of submitted, obedient, loyal service. Paying homage to God. The worship of God, the purity of worship, the power of worship, the potential of worship. It brings us back. It lifts us up. I would say this too. Well, pastor, that's great, but I'm not off there all backslidden. Why is worship so important for me? Because worship also rejuvenates. The secret to perpetual walking with God without large egregious sins like David suffered is to not stop worshiping. It is to rejuvenate through worship. Worshiping God rejuvenates your walk with him, rejuvenates your love for him, causes you to adore him, to be overwhelmed by him. I remember, and I don't remember if it was my junior or senior year of high school, but I remember going to we played a basketball game in Schaumburg. I was going to a school in Downers Grove, which is up in the Chicago area. And when I, I think my second year in a Christian school, I went to a little Christian school in Alton, Illinois. Uh, and the coach there really helped me. He took me under his wing. He taught me how to play ball. Well, the next year, within the next year or two, a bigger school up in Schaumburg brought him on to be the coach. And so a couple of years later, we're in a competitive school. So we go and we play the basketball game. Basketball game's over. Well, in the meantime, he had got married. And uh, some of the ladies that, uh, some of us that knew him from the other place had moved up there. Some other people were there as well. Some of the chaperones in the school were there watching. And, and I, I'm, you know, we're after the game. We're just kind of milling around, waiting to go home. And, and uh, somebody's trying to figure out, okay, well, who's so-and-so? Oh, that's him. He was standing over against the back wall under the basketball goal talking to his wife, his brand new wife. And no one had to figure out, everybody knew that he had just got married. And there were a lot of married people in the room, Brother Buck. But no one had to wonder who were the newlyweds were. Because the way that they interacted with each other, the way that they looked at each other, the, uh, the adoration that they had, especially him for her made it very obvious. My point is this morning that true worship is to adore God. No one should wonder. No one should ever have to ask, who's the Christian in the room? Who, a visitor that comes in here at this point in the first service should have a sense of who in the room truly adores God. Do we adore him? Pastor, I don't know if I adore him as I should. What's the problem? Perhaps you haven't spent enough time in his presence.
well, I don't like being in his presence. Maybe that's because we haven't allowed enough of that imputed righteousness to overcome us. How, where does that righteousness come from? Well, how about that faith? And when we're overwhelmed by faith, and we live in that imputed righteousness, and we learn to walk and to enjoy the presence of God, our heart will cry out to worship that God. To worship him purely. To worship him in his manner and method. To worship him in a way that pleases him. Worship is a lot of things this morning. It manifests itself in prayer. We touched on that in the message on exhortation. It manifests itself in praise. It manifests itself in singing. It manifests itself in that adoration. It manifests itself in a surrendered will. But listen, I can do all of those things and not truly worship. What I'm talking about this morning is to have a form of worship with my God to where I'm so yielded to him and I'm so devoted to him and I'm so loyal to him that I can't help but do anything else than sing his praise. When we do this, it brings God's will into focus and it keeps our life on course. You look at David's life as we close this morning. When David purely worshipped, his life was guided by the grace of God. And he won victory after victory after victory. When he fled from Saul, he was preserved, he was protected, and he maintained his integrity of not touching God's anointed. When he failed, he lost his way. He became misguided. And that same loving God came and found him. That underlying seeking of God in his own heart drew him back to God. His sin didn't harden him and make him say, I don't want you, God. His sin made him realize what he had lost and how he was missing God. And it caused him to come home. And he repented and God restored him and he continued to serve. And this morning we can talk about a man, not that slew giants, not that committed adultery, not that was a murderer, not that failed his people in many leadership roles, but we can talk about a man who was a man after God's own heart and a man who was the sweet psalmist of Israel, who gave us the method and the example of the power of worship in our lives. How will you worship this morning? Are you worshiping impurity? Are you worshiping self? Are you worshiping God's way or your way? Is the sin that you're not willing to own preventing you from having the relationship with God that God would have you to have? There's a world out there that needs you. There are Christians right here that need you. But we're pretty worthless until we can worship God. 